Okay, this week um, is election week, and as Christians, we believe the Lord will decide what is next for our country through your voting. So therefore, please go vote. If you haven't done it yet, please go do it, okay? Um, What I want to do to help you prepare for this week is I want to do, believe it or not, uh, some of you are going, finally, this is the end of a journey that we started a year ago, January, with Leviticus. So we've worked our way all the way through the story of Christianity, and I'm going to summarize it for you, okay? We started out uh, two years ago in, with uh, looking at Leviticus. It was one of the funny moments of my ministry. It's going to appear in a book one day. Uh, so we're going to study Leviticus, and several of you came up afterwards and said, have you actually read Leviticus? You know, if you've read and you don't understand it, it's very boring. It's a whole bunch of rules, rules, and rules, and more rules. And so I said, okay, just give me two weeks, and if it works out, then we'll keep going, and if you don't like it, we'll stop. So my first Sunday, I called the series, uh, Finding Jesus in Leviticus, and uh, the staff, starting with Jude, said, well, that was boring. And I go, really? Yeah, you're too of an academic. What would you call it? So they renamed it the love story of Leviticus because it is the story. It's the love story of God. Because Leviticus was just when they came out of Egypt around 1500 BC. And they just came out and he's going to teach them about himself and what it means to be holy. There's a bunch of commands in there, but Leviticus is far more than commands. I made the argument then that Leviticus actually... Uh, every, I believe every chapter in Leviticus changed world history. For example, in the chapter on blood, when we look back and if a, a wife gives birth, she's unclean. And, uh, and wait a minute, isn't, isn't uh, childbirth a blessing from the Lord? And that's where we talked about, you have to remember, clean and unclean are not good and bad, okay? Unclean is what doesn't occur in God's realm. It just means that it doesn't occur in the realm of the holy, And so the ancient world taught all the nations at that time, the known world taught that blood was evil. So blood was the way, uh, blood discharge was the way that demons were released in the world. Well, it's a very superstitious world. How would you know that if you didn't have any scientific background or truth? And so God comes along and says, no, 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 life is in the blood. Life is good. And so um, the reason why he had the women unclean is so they could rest after giving birth. And that was unique in the ancient world. They got to rest. So they got to stay at home for a period of time and not do any work. So the blood is good. Life is in the blood. How would we understand the Christian message of the shed blood of Christ on the cross if we didn't have that chapter? Because every other nation believed the blood was evil. It was bad. That's how demons were released. So Leviticus was actually... It was the beginning. It was a blueprint. I use that image, the blueprint of what God wanted his people to be. All along, God wanted a people who would love him freely. And the greatest thing he ever did was gave us freedom of choice. He let us decide. Otherwise, we wouldn't have been able to love him freely. That's the essence, by the way, of human dignity. If you go to any of the religions that predate Christianity, you see nothing in their teachings about dignity because they hadn't even thought of it. So when the Old Testament came, he told Adam and Eve, you get to choose. That's the basis for dignity right there. That's how important you are. You each get to choose. And then what he desires is a people who would worship him freely and love him for who he is, being a good God. And so that's where Leviticus comes in because it begins to lay the blueprint 
for what God wanted, but it does more than that. It's in the story of Leviticus that we learned about the covenant, the primary covenant that defines the people of God. It's in Exodus 19. Let's put that up. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. This is at the very beginning. They're sitting at the base of Mount Sinai. They've been out of Egypt now for a month and a half. You saw what I did, how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Five weeks, six weeks before, they were slaves, and now they're told they're going to be a kingdom of priests to love the rest of the world. That's the core covenant that, that ties everything together in the Bible, including us. Peter quotes that almost verbatim in 1 Peter 2, saying that's now us, the church. So the early dream was presented in Leviticus of a people that would be faithful, the people that would love him. That's the early dream, and God laid it out right there so that we could see what he expected or really what he desired. Now, Leviticus was full of lots of commands, and we talked about there that the problem with the law the Levitical code was not the code. It was perfect. Here's the problem right here. Everything written in Leviticus is actually very easy to obey. That's not the problem. The problem is we're a little obstinate as people. We don't like being told what to do. And so that wasn't the problem. And so right after he said those words <clears throat> in Exodus 19, all the people said, perfect. Everything God says, we will do. And they turned right around and made the golden calf. Okay? They're just like us. Okay, let's be honest. Every time you see people doing stupid things in the Bible, they're just like us because we all do stupid things in our life. But it revealed, it revealed that even the covenant was not enough because we have a problem right here. This is what we need help with. And so we went from uh, Leviticus to during Lent, and we looked at the new the covenants, okay? Because all the covenants, as they begin to unfold, we learn more and more about the dream that God has for his people. And so every covenant layers on top of the, the one before, and you begin to learn these really wonderful things about who God is. I've said many, many times that if you want to know who our God is, read the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. That's who God is. And so that's a description. That's the clearest description of God in the Bible because he gives out of who he is. So every time a covenant came, it layered on top of the previous one, really good things. It did have warnings and curses for those who rebel against him and reject him, but not for the faithful. And so here is what came out of the study of the covenants was a new covenant, which we celebrate every time we do communion. I'm going to read it for you out of Jeremiah 31. It's also found in Isaiah, Ezekiel, Hebrews, many other places. The, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, even though I was a husband to them. I mean, it only took them five minutes. Everything the Lord says we'll do, let's build a golden calf. <laughs> That's how long it took them. And so this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. He's not going to change the covenant. He's adding a necessary dimension to it. I will put my law in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. Ezekiel explains this is the coming of the Holy Spirit. 
where God himself will come to live in us and with us. Um, No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. That's the new covenant, and that's what was brought about at the cross. So we learned that he gave a blueprint for what he desired, a people who would love him, uh, and he would take care of them. They would be his people. He, he would be their God. And they immediately broke it, so he put in place a new covenant and said, I'm going to send and make a new covenant. That's what happens with Jesus. We learned that through the covenant. So the covenants are like walking down a dark road with a flashlight. They tell us where God is going. And so we begin to get a glimpse of where God is headed. So right off the bat, we know that he has a people that he just wants to love him because he loves to bless. That's the God that I know. He wants to bless his people. And so Leviticus is all about blessing. It's all about God caring for us. And the covenants tell us, he realizes that because of our sinfulness, we can't do it. We do stupid things every day. We call that sin. Don't let that scare you away. We do stupid things all day long, every day. And he says, I know, I know. Let me help you. Let me come along and help you. And then in the summer, last summer at the amphitheater, a year ago, we talked about the temples. And this is where we came up with God's presence, the burning bush. Remember that? He appeared. Moses is walking through the desert all by himself with his sheep or flocks, whatever it has. He glances over and he sees this bush that's burning, but it's not burning up. Okay, that's got his curiosity. So he goes wandering over, and when he goes wandering over, here's what happens. This comes out of uh, Exodus 3. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, all this, Moses, at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Okay, so I raised the question of why Moses is standing here and he sees a burning bush. So he walks 20 feet over to, and he says, hey, take your sandals off. You're on holy ground. Why is this dirt holy? But the dirt over here is not holy. Now we learned something from studying all the temples. What makes it holy is God's presence. That's what makes it holy. Okay, now it doesn't take long. It doesn't take long when you look at the new covenant and you combine it with the study of the temples to come up with a very simple idea. If you have demonstrated faith, you have God indwelling you through the Holy Spirit. What that means is the ground you're standing on is now holy. That's what that means. It's holy. Okay, that's why I said it doesn't matter who comes through those doors, it doesn't matter. Come up and shake their hand, give them a hug, say hello to them. They're standing on holy ground, they don't even know it. So what happens when you see your friends and you just love them. It doesn't matter what their lifestyle is, all that stuff. What's important is that they're in a relationship with you and they're standing on holy ground. That's why Paul says, I think in 1 Corinthians 7, that a, a believing spouse who has an unbelieving spouse, stay married. They're sanctified, they're being made holy, they don't even know it because they're in the presence of God. And that's a good thing. The elders have asked me more than once, why why is it important that we be a church that uh, doesn't take a political stance? We are all political. Because the moment I say that I'm Republican, I alienate all of you who are Democrats. The the moment I say I'm a Democrat, I alienate all of you who are Republican. That doesn't mean you shouldn't have political convictions. Don't hear that. I'm really glad that we have the town council members right here. We had two this morning, one sitting back there. 
I love that. Run for mayor, run for governor, run for whatever you want, school board, okay? Get involved. I think that's really awesome. Um, but in a church setting, this is not the platform to tell you what to believe or how to vote. I have my own personal convictions, and I already voted, and I hope you'll do the same. But uh, we are the only institution on the earth that represents a loving God to a fallen world that's trying to figure it out. They're nervous, they're frightened, they're anxious. You know what it's like in the world. And so the moment we start taking political sides, then we're going to alienate ourselves from everybody who's not like that. Okay, so hold your convictions. I've never once asked you to change your convictions, have I? And hold your convictions. They can be wrong, it's okay. If you don't vote like me, they're just wrong, right? (laughs) No, go vote, go vote. And then trust the Lord to make the decision. He's about to make a decision this week on what's going to happen next in our country. I don't get nervous about election time. I watch it because I enjoy it. I'm excited because I feel like I'm watching. I'm right on the threshold of watching God act. Okay, and it may not be the way I think he should do it. And I don't mind telling him he made a mistake. I've told him that more. I told him he made a mistake about Julie stepping down. Okay, that's just a mistake. You should have never led her that way. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> but I, I get a chance this week to watch, in one of the clearest ways possible, God's sovereignty at work. What's going to happen? Okay. And so this came about because of our study of the temple. So we have a blueprint for a people that would voluntarily say, God, I want to serve you and love you. And God says, great, because I want to bless you. We have a blueprint, and then we find out we can't do it. So then we go from there to the covenants where we learn that God hasn't forgotten us. He's promised a new covenant so that we will never be alone again, the sending of his spirit. And then from there, we went to the temples and see that, wow, we have a purpose. We are the, holy, the, holy, the spiritual temple. We are the ones who represent the kingdom this true God to a fallen world. That's why we don't engage in, Jesus said in Luke 6, do not judge, do not condemn. This is where I argued, you cannot convict another human, redeem another human, or transform it. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. I'm not going to try. It's a wasted effort. That's called freedom. You want to mess up your life, you go right ahead. I'm going to laugh at you and be there to help you pick up the pieces when you do it. No judgment, no condemnation. And I think in my 40 years of serving Christ plus, I've heard everything. I think so. Maybe not. But you know what? We do a lot of stupid things, myself included. And the last thing you need is judgment. You don't need this. Well, some of you do. I'm looking at you, Saskia. You might. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Uh, She's a teenager. She needs a little help. (laughs) No, I'm just just kidding. I'm just kidding. I give your sister the same treatment. (laughs) No, no, the truth is you don't need that. What you need is people to welcome you and say, you, you can figure it out if you're doing something stupid. I don't, you don't need me to tell you. You can figure it out. And we get that from looking at it. We went from there last fall to Ecclesiastes, okay, chasing after the wind. This is where Solomon, who was the wealthiest and the wisest person at that time, he tried everything. He tried everything. He had a thousand wives and concubines. Oh, my gosh, how did he do that? I can hand, barely handle one. Sorry, Nance. <laughs> you know, and so I don't know how he did it, but he tried everything that his heart was set. His heart was set on. He tried it, and he said, "You know what it is? It's vanity." That's the English word on the Old King James for. It's the Hebrew word evil. Breath is chasing after the wind. 
That's his conclusion. He's chasing after the wind. All the money in the world is not going to make you happy. All the success in the world is not going to make you happy. I have so delighted in my, my long ministry of watching people age. When you're in your middle 20s and 30s, you're trying to think about your career and you're concerned about kids and sports and how we're going to survive and you know how it works. Then you get it to your upper end of your career and you're concerned about pe- success and how you're doing. Then you get to the time of retirement and you think, oh, how am I going to do that? Then you get through retirement and you have one of the toughest battles of all. That's moving from success, which has been defined by the world, to significance, which is defined by God's word. And I've talked to so many people, and that's a hard transition. Then you get into your 70s and 80s, and guess what? You don't even care about your career anymore. You don't. You're not even talking about it. Now you're facing mortality. That's what you're facing is mortality. And so everything else is chasing after the wind. So his final conclusion after messing up his entire life is the last two verses of Ecclesiastes. By the way, the symbol is we've got to have clear focus. Okay, let's put the last two verses up there. Now that all has been heard, here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. That's Ecclesiastes. And I brought that up last fall because we're on this journey to figure out who we are as a people of God. And last fall, everybody started getting nervous about what's happening in the public schools, what's happening around the country, various policies that are being passed, a president that you may or may not like. Economically, we're getting into trouble. And so we spent the fall looking at this. Let's bring everybody back together and don't panic over the wrong things. Stay together. Stay relaxed. And then from there, at the beginning of this year, we went into Ephesians. This is where we talked about a house that God built. Ephesians 2.19, okay? We are being built into a spiritual house. This is what was envisioned in, the, in Leviticus. A spiritual house where we would be faithful and God could bless us and grant us freedom. And so... It's these people here, it's us. People that have turned to Christ and said, we really want to honor the Lord. We really do. Our God is not a hard God. You read the rules that he laid down. People, the students go, 613 commands, you've got to be kidding me. How many commands do you think there are in a church? They're just unwritten. You've got to dress right. You've got to do all kinds of things the right way, right? And so, no, our God is a very gracious God. And then from there, we went to, last, uh, this summer in the amphitheater, we took one of those qualities and we moved into this whole concept of goodness. The Hebrew word for goodness is tov, used 400 times. 400 times in the, I mean, uh, yeah, 400 times in the Old Testament. Okay, 400, no, 700 times in the Old Testament, sorry. In other words, it's real important. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness. If we are not a church that's characterized by goodness, we've already lost it. Let's just close the doors and go home. Goodness in the way we treat each other, in the way we care for each other, in the way we show dignity to both genders, in the way we treat our marriages with honor and respect. That's what a church is that's good. We do things the right way. We're honest and transparent. When we mess up, we say so. 
Then we've been in Philippians, where we've talked about the beauty of Jesus on the cross. Okay? And yes, it's a beautiful thing to see him on the cross. We would have nothing that we have today in the way of blessing if it wasn't for Jesus on the cross. You see, that's what brought about the fulfillment of the Mosaic law. That's what brought about the coming of the Spirit to indwell us so we're never alone again. And where does it end? Okay, in Philippians, he gives the example of himself, of Jesus, of Timothy, and Epaphroditus. And he says in there, Um, that to you it has been graced by God. Philippians 1.29. Not only to believe in his name, but to suffer. You see, suffering is a grace of God. You know why? I can think of at least three reasons. One is, how would you know your faith is real if it's never been tested? How would you know? Every one of you here has been through suffering. All all I got to do is sit and listen to you and I'll hear it. Every one of you. And that's what makes your faith grow. The second reason, it gives us a chance to come together in love as a church and show unity. It gives us a chance to move to each other's aid. Uh, two people in our church just this week found out they had cancer. Okay, I can't say anything publicly yet, but we will. And, uh, you know, I just sat with one of them and just cried together. Um, one of them loses their job, and I mean another one. And to sit, this allows us to come together as a community and bless each other. That's the second reason. But the third reason is, remember, we're the only institution on the earth that reflects the kingdom of this wonderful God to the world. They understand suffering. You don't have to teach them about it. You don't have to explain it to them. They got it down like that. But what they don't understand is grace in the middle of it, running alongside to help them, to to help them be part of something bigger, They belong, in other words. And so that's why it's called grace. Well, here's how he concludes Philippians 4, verse 12. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content. And this is where we've been heading for two years. The secret to being content. In any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. Remember, God loves to bless. I'd love each of you to take this verse, these two verses, and write it out in your own lives. Here's what mine looks like. I know what it's like to lose my first wife at 25. My children are one in three. I know what it's like to be laid off from more than one job. I know what it's like to open the fridge and there's no food in it. And if God doesn't answer my prayer, then for the first time in my life, my family's going to miss a meal. I know what it's like to be told you have bladder cancer. I know what that's like. Been there, done that. Right? I know those things. And I have learned to be content. Some of you are going through really rough stuff right now. I can't deny it. It's ongoing. Jude and I have talked about how I've been here almost 10 years, and it's so steady. Fortunately, it's not the same person going through the same issues. It's always the Holy Spirit moving around amongst us, going through everything from cancer to loss of job to hunger to loss of house. And so the question I want to leave you with as we head into this week, uh, are you anxious? Are you content? 
that is part of the fruit of the Spirit that the Spirit gives us. Love, joy, peace, shalom. Shalom. That's a resting of the Spirit internally. You have nothing to be anxious for. That's why Jesus could say, if he cares enough for the sparrows to take care of them, don't you think he'll take care of you? Do you really believe that? For some of you, this is going to be an exciting week. For some of you, it's going to be a rough week. I'm not going to deny it. I don't know what the outcome is. All I know is that it's important that we as a church remember that we are the only institution that represents a loving God to a world that is so desperate to be loved and cared for. Next week, after the election, we're going to raise another question. When God looks at our church, what does he see? Does he see a bunch of Republicans and Democrats or Libertarians or whatever you happen to be? Independent? Does he see that? What does he see? I would like to invite you after church this week. We've already done two Sundays this week and next Sunday to join me over there for just a few minutes and let's pray for this week as God reveals whatever he's going to reveal. Even in the worst situations, he still does it for the sake of us being able to reflect his glory and his love to a world that needs it. Are you at rest? Are you content? Don't worry about the weak. Vote. Just vote the right way. Just kidding. (laughs) Father, thank you for being so wonderful, loving, loving to bless. Thank you for caring, for being so kind, for being uh, forbearing, being so loving, so joyful, for being at rest and teaching us how to rest. Help us this week, Father, to look to you and not to the political systems of the world. trust you to use them well. We pray these things in your son's name, Jesus, our high priest. Amen.